Holy Father, you are grand, great, glorious beyond comprehension. You're so good to your children, generous, loving, kind. We ask this morning that you give us hearts, that you give us eyes and minds to recognize these precious realities, that you might work in us your faith, that we will not be overwhelmed or discouraged. We live in a world that is broken, that's filled with animosity, with chaos, with evil. But even before creation, you knew. Your perfect plan is not thwarted nor altered by sin and depravity. Your design has always been to restore, to reorder, to reconcile. Your purpose has always been to redeem the lost. We pray that you might assure our hearts that you are bringing that redemption to fruition even now. Christ's atoning work has forever settled our debt. Now you're working redemption into all of creation. Lord, enable us to lean into this truth with peace and with confidence. Our salvation's finished, but not yet fully realized. I pray that your spirit will animate every soul here this morning, that you might remove the distractions, that you might strengthen us against temptation, that you will renew our faith and confidence in you alone. Make us joyful in the gospel. Make us steadfast in your promises. Make us faithful in your service. Lord, make us passionate and pleasing in your worship. For we ask it, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians 1, one of the great chapters in all of Scripture. In fact, if you told me that I could have one page of Scripture, I think this might be the one I would take. There's a couple of close seconds, but this one is at the top. The scope and the richness of this text is second to none. The glory, the exultation is breathtaking. Paul, as I told you, is in prison. He's writing this to a group of people that he cared very deeply for. Ephesus was a hard place for Christianity a challenging place for Christians to live. It was consumed with false worship. The temple of Diana dominated the landscape. In fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Almost everything, economically, socially, was tied, connected to this false worship. The believers were small in number, much like our present world. Where we see hostility, we see brokenness, chaos, confusion. It's easy for us to begin to wonder what's going on. We've been blessed to live in a land that has had undeniable Christian influence for a long time. But that seems to be coming to an end rather quickly. Can we make sense out of our society and all of its disorder? Do we dare live openly for Christ, let alone speak openly for Christ? 
Similar thoughts plague the believers in Ephesus, I'm sure. Paul is not addressing any particular problem or issue there, but it seems that he is writing to encourage maybe a group that's growing discouraged. He wants to encourage them to worship the Lord, to do so without fear or intimidation. He's reminding them that God is sovereign, that he has all things in control, that he can be trusted, even though it doesn't appear that he's winning. They need not worry or be anxious about the state of society. They can rejoice and be glad in God's glorious plan. In verses 3 through 14, we're seeing something interesting happen here. The covenant of redemption is being fulfilled, consummated, if you will, here in these verses. There are lots of covenants throughout Scripture, and this term may be somewhat unfamiliar to us, and I want us to think about it for just a few moments this morning as we make our way into the exposition of our text. What is a covenant? There are lots of them in the Bible. We have the Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant. We have the Davidic covenant, the covenant of creation or works. We have the Old Testament, which is the old covenant. And we have the New Testament, which is the new covenant. So what do we mean when we talk about covenant? In a little while, as we observe the Lord's Supper, and we will recite our church covenant together. It's something that tends to be ignored or forgotten in a lot of Christian circles today, but it's a very important part of our faith. So when we hear this term, what do we think about? You know, we have covenants in our society, don't we? Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. Most of you live in a subdivision where you have a homeowner's covenant, an agreement, you may not be part of a country club, or you may, where they have a covenant. Government trade agreements are covenants. Peace treaties are covenants. So a covenant is an agreement. It's a pledge. It's a promise. And covenants very often have stipulations. They have a code of conduct or expectations that go with them. Now, in Scripture, as I said, there are many covenants, but there are three overarching primary covenants that are worth considering. All the others kind of nestle underneath these covenants. We have the covenant of redemption that I mentioned earlier. We have the covenant of creation or works, the Adamic covenant, maybe. And then there's the covenant of grace, so let me describe the first or the second and the third for you. The covenant of creation is between God and Adam. God placed Adam in creation, gave him everything he needed, and then he entrusted Adam as vice regent over creation. He said, your responsibility is to multiply, to fill the earth with people, my people, who will follow, will worship me. God instructed Adam to obey him and he said, everything, everyone will prosper as you obey. Of course, we know Adam broke that covenant and plunged all of creation into sin and death. The covenant of grace 
we may be most familiar with is between God and his elect. God reconciles the elect through Christ's finished work as the last Adam. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. He obeyed the Father, kept the law perfectly, paid the ransom owed for sin. He's the last Adam and head of a new race of redeemed people. The elect believe the gospel, repent, and trust in Christ's finished work on their behalf. So what is the covenant of redemption? The covenant of redemption is an agreement that was made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity past. It occurred before the ages began, before creation. It pertained to the roles each person in the Trinity would fulfill in reclaiming the elect and establishing them as God's people. His people would be the bride of Christ. So the roles that each person in the Trinity played, the Father originates the plan, Jesus Christ executes the plan, and the Holy Spirit applies the plan. The Trinity agreed to redeem a people. And it is his free and sovereign decision to set his love on certain individuals due to nothing in those individuals, nothing that they would do or not do. It's strictly because of his good pleasure, his will. The triune God devised an eternal plan in which man's salvation would be accomplished by the redemptive work of God the Son in which saving benefits be secured by that redemptive work would be applied by God the Spirit. The second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, would condescend to take on all the weakness and infirmity of humanity without sin and would secure for his people the righteousness, forgiveness, and cleansing that they could never obtain for themselves. As Brandon prayed just a few moments ago, we bring nothing to the equation except our depravity. Christ would live as a man in perfect obedience to the Father, die on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice to atone for the sins of those whom the Father has chosen, and rise again in victory over sin and death, all in the power of the Holy Spirit. So redemption would be accomplished by the miraculous incarnation, vicarious life, penal substitutionary death, and death-defeating resurrection of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's imperative for every serious student of Scripture to understand that the Son's mission, Christ's mission to accomplish redemption is birthed out of this inter-Trinitarian covenant, agreement that they made in time past. Some argue that this covenant is speculative. They contend it's not clearly spelled out in Scripture. They ask, how can we know what the Trinity did before creation? Some believe the only real evidence for this covenant is found in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, which say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on the throne and the council 
The counsel of peace shall be between them both. There are many, many other places in Scripture where this covenant is implicitly stated, talked about. The passage we have before us here in Ephesians tells us in verse 4, before the foundation of the world, he has chosen us before the foundation of the world. Before creation occurred, God chose. And he was not in the dark. He was not some willy-nilly um, idea that just struck him. And then he had to make it up as he was going. But this was planned out in detail from the beginning. He knew us before the beginning. He knew how he was going to accomplish what he was going to do. Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 11 says, To me, though I am the least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal, to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So you see, this plan clearly was in place before creation occurred. This conversation, this agreement, this covenant occurred among the Trinity God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, before creation ever began. Not only do we see that kind of evidence, we also hear often Jesus talking about being sent with this purpose. John 5.30 John 5, says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 5, 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. John 6, 38 through 40, I come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 17, John 17, verses 4 through 12. I glorified you on earth, Jesus' high priestly prayer, prior to his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. 
And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. You find more of these implications in Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. Romans 8, 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This work was clearly set in motion before creation. Jesus speaks often, repeatedly. It's not a mistake. It's not a slip of the tongue, but constantly reminding All that he was sent by the Father with purpose, with a plan. The elect were chosen before the foundation of the world. And essentially, Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. You see, God never starts anything that he hasn't already completed. So when they made their plan, devised and designed this plan, it was already accomplished. 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. And in Hebrews 7, 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant or our surety. He is responsible to fulfill all of our obligations. Louis Burkhoff, in his systematic theology, said this. He said, in the covenant of redemption, Christ undertook to atone for the sins of his people by bearing the necessary punishment and to meet the demands of the law for them. And by taking the place of delinquent man, he became the last Adam and is as such also the head of the covenant the representative of all whom the Father has given him. In the covenant of redemption, then, Christ is both surety and head. He took upon himself the responsibilities of his people. So, let's think a little bit about the requirements and the promises associated with this particular covenant. The requirements. The Father required of the Son, who appeared In this covenant as guarantee and head of his people and as the last Adam that he should make amends for the sin of Adam. And of those whom the father had given to the son and he should do what Adam failed to do by keeping the law. And thus securing eternal life for all his spiritual progeny. In particular, 
He would assume a human nature by being born of a woman, the seed of woman, the scripture says. And he would do this without sin. Where Adam sinned and all of us who have descended from Adam have sinned, we are bent towards sin, we can't not sin. But Jesus was different. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born into this world, both God and man, fully God as if not man, fully man as if not God. He was superior to the law, but placed himself under the law. He entered into the penal and federal relation to the law so that he could pay the penalty of sin and merit everlasting life for the elect. After he merited forgiveness of sins and eternal life for the elect, he then should apply to them the fruits of his marriage, which are complete pardon, complete pardon, and renewal of their lives through the powerful operation of the Holy Spirit. And by doing this, he would render it absolutely certain that believers should consecrate themselves to him. The promises associated with this covenant. The father promised the son all that was required for this redemptive work. There was nothing left to uncertainty, including whom would be a part of the elect. No uncertainty at all. God would prepare a body for the son. God would endow him with the necessary gifts and graces for the world and would particularly equip by giving him the spirit without measure. That God would support him in the completion of his work, would deliver him from the power of death and would thus enable him to destroy the dominion of Satan and to establish the kingdom of God. He also promised that he would send out the Holy Spirit for the formation of his spiritual body. That the Holy Spirit would be the one that would apply the work of Christ to your heart, to my heart, to all believers, all the elect. That he would give him a numerous seed in reward for his accomplished work. So many, in fact, that they cannot be numbered from all the nations, tribes, and tongues. And he promised that he would commit to him all power in heaven and on earth for the government of the world and of his church. Now, with that in place, understanding that this covenant of redemption in eternity past, Adam's failure in the covenant that God made with him and the covenant of grace, which fulfills what began with the covenant of redemption. We look at verses 3 through 14 in this passage, and we see the apostle Paul is writing about the culmination of this this covenant of redemption. There are three phases in here. He's, he's got three stages moving through this. In the first, the first verses, three through six, he talks to us about the Father, what God has done. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has chosen us. He has elect his people. He has predestined us for adopting all according to his will and his purpose. Why? For the praise of his glory. Beginning with verse 7 that Akeem read earlier and moving all the way through verse 12, God the Son is in view. In him we have redemption through his blood, 
Redemption means to secure the release or recovery of a person or person's things by the payment of a price. Sin holds all things, all creation in captivity, in bondage. It's an unbreakable grip. Every human enters this world with a nature bent towards sin. There's not a thing you can do to change it in your own power. God's justice, holiness will not tolerate sin. All things, this, all this creation, Scripture tells us, was made for the glory of God. Now, if sin is moving and controlling and having everything captured and in bondage unto itself, how can it possibly be glorifying to God? It can't. Nothing sinful, bent towards sin, can glorify God. Judgment for this condition is death. It's physical, it's spiritual, it's eternal. Separation from God and His glory. Or, you might say, being in God's presence without grace, without mercy. Eternal suffering, Scripture says, in a place made for Satan and his demons called hell. But God's glory is displayed as he condescended to enter this world, take flesh upon himself, live under the law as all humanity has, and do so without sinning, without serving himself, but fulfilling the plans, the purposes, the perfect will of God in every way. No sin. In Adam, we all fell into sin, but in Christ, as head of a new race, all can be made righteous, will be made righteous. Romans 5, 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Romans 3, 10 through 12, None are righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one's seeking after God. No one's pursuing God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are, justified not, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Romans 3, 23 through 25. Consider the price God paid to redeem the elect. That's what Paul's doing here. He has redeemed us. By his what? Blood. This speaks of a very great, costly price. By his blood, you were ransomed, 1 Peter says, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Ephesians 1 6 and 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1, 13, 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Revelation 5, 9. 
And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The blood of Jesus Christ is both the price paid to purchase people for himself and the means of liberating those he purchased. A greater price cannot be conceived. In giving his beloved son to redeem sinners, the father gave his all. We must then conclude his love for sinners is vast, immeasurable even. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In him, Throughout these verses, this is a a continual refrain that Paul uses. I count 11 times in these verses. He says, in him or in Christ Jesus or in the beloved. References to Christ over and over and over. In him, we have forgiveness of our trespasses. We have forgiveness of our trespasses. You know, every religion, the people involved in every religion understand the need for forgiveness. The difference between true Christianity and false religions is the way in which that forgiveness is procured. Christianity is the only one that has a condescending God who came down and paid a perfect price for our forgiveness. Has washed our dirty hearts with his own pure blood to make us righteous again. All the others require something on the part of the creature, some sort of penance, some sort of price that you work out yourself. Jesus Christ, in him we have redemption. We have been ransomed through his blood. It's a great price, but it's a sufficient price. In him we receive grace without measure, according to the riches, according to the riches of his grace, not out of his riches. You know, there's a story about John D. Rockefeller. I'm dating myself. I wasn't alive when he was alive, but uh, many of you probably know about the Rockefellers in history. But John D. Rockefeller at one time was the Elon Musk of our day. He was the world's richest man. And the story goes that he encountered on the streets in the city in which he lived a young orphan boy, ragtag, needing help, begging, if you will, for some help. And that John D. Rockefeller, the richest man in all the world, reached into his pocket, took out a dime and placed it in his hand. Now, he gave out of his riches his wealth, not according to. You understand the difference But when God adopts us into himself, he gives us his name and he makes us sons and fellow heirs with Christ. According to the riches of his grace. Had Rockefeller taken that young boy and said, you know what? You come and move into my house. I'm going to give you my name, legal standing with my name. And I'm going to put your name on the accounts that I have. And you have anything that you want. You live according to the riches 
of my wealth. Jesus, in him we have grace that is without measure. In him, he reveals the mystery of his will. A mystery in this sense with the Bible is not intrigue. It's not a puzzle or a riddle. It is simply the fact that something was kept unveiled or invisible, invisible, dark, hidden, and now has become visible, that has been brought into the light. The mystery has been revealed. In him, we see everything has a proper and fit time. A plan for the fullness of time, he says. A plan for the fullness of time. This does me so much good in my daily life. Because like many of you, I tend to be impatient. You ever get impatient? You look at the clock and you start sweating because you see the clock is ticking and you're not getting the things done that you need to get done. You're not getting where you need to go. You're sitting in traffic and watching the clock and the time burn like a vapor. And we get anxious. Why hasn't this happened? When will this happen? Are we there yet? Time doesn't mean anything to God. He holds time in his hand. But he has appointed a certain and fit and proper time for everything that occurs. Not according to a schedule that we keep, but according to his purpose. When Christ came into the world, God picked the right time. In fact, Paul wrote about this in Galatians. He said it was at the fullness of time that Christ entered into the world, took on flesh in order to die for the sins of men. He says that this plan, everything about this plan is operating according to the fullness of God's plan. This helps me because when I think, why? Why are certain things allowed to happen? Why are things happening in the sequence that they're happening? Why doesn't this happen more quickly I lean into this and know that God is working all things according to his plan and according to the fullness of time as he knows it's perfect, it's proper, it's fit in every single situation. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you. And we see here that in him, God is restoring, reordering, reconciling all things in unity, in unity, things in heaven and things on earth. His whole plan, he's bringing it all together perfectly. Restoring, reordering, and reconciling all things. The fall resulted in brokenness, disunity, hostility, chaos, and we see it manifested around us and before us and in us day in and day out continually. But God says, because Christ came, because Christ came and purchased forgiveness and died, paid the debt of sin, that God is now working out a new creation. He's working all things toward the completion of the restoration. As we said last week, from Eden to Eden once more, God's making it occur. Not according to our timetable, but in his perfect time. 
we have an unquenchable thirst to focus on ourselves. We think about redemption through a me-first lens, don't we? Thank goodness that God came and died for my sin. Sometimes it's easy for us to fall into this trap of thinking that God's redemption is just all about me. And that's not untrue. That's not untrue. God's redemption is for you. But we need a healthy perspective. What is that healthy perspective? Well, very often we forget, we ignore, we lack understanding about the bigger story. And that bigger story is what? God's glory, isn't it? It's God's glory. All of this was put together that God might manifest and radiate and display his glory throughout all of creation. What he has done is the most astounding and breathtaking reality ever considered. And he did it. He did it. He did every last vestige of it. Yes, to redeem his elect. To call out, shape, glorify a people for himself. But he did it for the praise of his glory. This is Paul's point to the Ephesians. All these things that are going on around you, you're there. You feel like a minority. You feel like you're going down for the count. You feel like, what's the point of continuing? Paul says, it's all for the glory of God. It's for the praise of his glory. Look at what he's, the effort he's gone to. This covenant began in eternity past. It's gone through everything that you see, history recording, and it's going to culminate where? It's going to culminate in glory around the throne, praising him and honoring him forever. And every aspect of it is going to be used to display the glory of God for all of eternity. Hallelujah. Now, that will help you when you're facing adversity. That will help you when everything is going wrong. That will help you when the boss walks in and says, your services are no longer required here. Consider the facts. In eternity past, before there was a creation, the Trinity conceived creation. And it included the fall. I'm not saying... Listen carefully. I'm not saying God created sin. <laughs> but the fall was a part of the plan. He understood the rebellion, the hostility, the evil that would result. God knew every creature, every nation, every tribe, every unborn child aborted. God knew it all before the foundation of the world. Out of this massive depravity and violence, he chose many whom he would redeem unto himself for the praise of his glory. The plan was charted. It was prepared. The three persons of the Godhead agreed to the roles they would fulfill. God originated, the Son executed, the Spirit applies. It's an incredible thought to ponder. It's difficult to grasp. As his elect, we are reclaimed, rescued, delivered, completely, fully. Already done, yet not fully realized. 
We've been gathered up into this incredible work, not because of anything special in ourselves. Nothing appealing about ourselves, but because God is who he is and doing what he's doing, in his mercy and grace, he chose many to redeem. If you, me, this church will get our hearts and souls around this, it'll change the way we worship. It'll change the way we operate, the way we function. Humanly speaking, we pay close attention to what we do here. Many believe particular songs, styles, tempos, instruments, apparel, appearance, or personality are keys for success. These things are not the big deal. The heart of worship is our comprehension of God's greatness. To be amazed at what he has done and dumbfounded that he has done it. To be absolutely rocked that he chose us. This will alter the way we live. The way we read his word, it'll change the way we pray. The way we worship him daily and the way we worship him corporately as a body. It'll affect the way we obey and serve and remain faithful. It'll also change the way we approach the Lord's table. Jesus gave us this ordinance that we might remember him, that we might contemplate him, that we might commune with him. He instituted the supper in Matthew 26, which says Jesus took bread and after breaking it, blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, to, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What do we remember? Well, we look back to what Christ has done for us on the cross. He has purchased us with his blood. We look up to where Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father as we commune with him spiritually through this meal. And we look around to the body, the covenant body that he has purchased with his blood as we commune together. And we look forward to Christ's return when he gathers all his children together and we will eat and drink with him in his Father's kingdom forever. This meal is open to everyone who has repented of their sins and believed in Christ alone for salvation. Those who have followed in Christ's command to be baptized as a believer and who are members in good standing of a local church that preaches the true gospel, the Lord's Supper is a serious matter. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Through 29 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. In just a moment, we will sing together and you'll have an opportunity to come and take the bread and wine from the table and return to your seats where we will receive them together.
If you're not able to sign the new church covenant with us last month, you can do so today as you come.